This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is actually going to be John 2, verses 1 through 12. That is not the scripture in your service guide. So if you'd like to grab the, one of the Bibles under the chair in front of you and turn to page 887, that's where you'll find today's scripture. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also, also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Holy bald-headed cats, it's cold. Even up here under the lights. Can you turn the lights on any higher there, Josiah? Let's blind them and add some heat. Well, good morning. Well, thank you. It is my pleasure to be able to step into the pulpit for Michael this morning as he recovers. In these circumstances... Let's take time to glorify Christ, all right? Colder than heck, and uh, there's no warmer place to be than in the cleft of the rock, all right? So there are two things for you to keep in mind as we open John 2, uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. First, remember uh, how John starts this gospel in verse 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And if you drop down to verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And the second thing, I like metaphors. I think metaphors are valuable figures of speech that help us to learn, understand, and remember new things. 
so that they can become old things in our memory. For instance, this mixed metaphor. The entirety of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-1 screams God's salvation and providence with a scarlet ribbon that runs through the entirety of the word in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our King, Prophet, and Priest. Today, we will see that scarlet ribbon connect with John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I think that there are four points that we can pull out of this passage. The first one is that God's will is certain. I think we'll see that in verses 1 and 2. The second point, God's will is impossible for us to accomplish from our own efforts. So we must submit to God. Third point, I love this one. God's way is not constrained by time. And finally, God's reason is for Jesus to be glorified. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we ask only one thing today, and that is that you be glorified in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And Father, if you would, if you will, please uh, bring Michael uh, to full health. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. Love how John writes. He gives us a setup already in verses 1 through 12, starting with verse 1. That's a great place for a setup, is the first verse of a passage. Verses 1 and 2, On the third day there was a wedding in, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So this is our first point, right? God's will for our lives is certain. And that applied to everybody who went to the wedding feast. They didn't know what was about to happen. But God has called them to this joyous festivity. So this gets us to that first point, that God's will for our lives is certain. And it's working for each of the lives of all of those connected to this wedding right down to a minute. William Barclay reasons that this event would have been on the third day after the day in which Jesus called Philip and Nathanael uh, from Galilee in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Barclay also tells us that Jewish weddings were commonly held from Wednesday through sundown on Friday, the beginning of the Sabbath. Feasting, ceremony, dancing, music, and parading the newlyweds through the streets of the city occupied the entirety of everyone's waking hours. The wedding party even escorted the bride and groom to the foot of their bedchamber. What had been two distinct beings, even in their betrothal, were at last made one flesh by the love, grace, and mercy of the creator of marriage for his glory. 
God's certain will brought every attendee to the wedding, each of whom was planning to witness its inherent beauty. Think of this as a movie screen with a wide-angle lens to capture all of the families and friends who are up to their eyeballs in joy. What a celebration. So picture my arms as the widescreen view, if you would, please. But then, unnoticed but for a few people in the audience, there's a gaggle over here. Something is amiss in this monstrous amount of joy. Murmurs start. And John explains in chapter 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. This is a big whoops if you are the host and hostess and the server of this feast. This brings us to our second point. God's will is impossible to accomplish from our own efforts so that we must submit to it. There was no 24-hour high V uh, on a nearby corner where somebody could run and grab up whatever they could grab up to supply the feast. The host and hostesses are in trouble. And this is a very real problem for the whole wedding party. The families of the bride and the groom, the master of the feast, its caterers, the servants and the hosts of the feast, which I think might well have been Mary, given her earnestness to the problem. Can you sense the tension that is built here? Golly, if you haven't, uh, you need to follow me for a week, and probably several others in this congregation, because stuff happens that is way out of our control. Even as you read this verse, the tension begins to become palpable because we have all known that tension in such instances to be real. We know that the entire wedding party is connected to the guests by virtue of their responsibilities for this event. We also know that it will be the bride, the groom, and their families who will suffer most and be remembered by the event's failure. Forever. So, always and forever, at least someone needs to cry out to God. Mary does just that. She comes to and stands before her intercessor, Jesus, and says it all in four words They have no wine. These are likely discreet and quiet words of desperation, cried out to God who knows our hearts and our needs. These words also speak to the eloquence of her simplicity. I do wonder if Jesus' immediate response is what she expected. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Whoa! Slam on the brakes. What's going on here? In my mind, his response does nothing 
to assuage the tension that Mary and the entire wedding party is undergoing at that moment. Well, it wasn't that long ago when my first report, retort to Jesus' intention would go like this. What? And I would put an emphasis on the W of what? And I would close my left eye and twist my face to explain to him how foolish this seems to little old me. Part of this also includes what could be interpreted as disrespect for mom. I don't think that's it at all. I once addressed my mom in a rude way. Once. When I awoke from my stupor, I was in the next county to the east, and I never made that mistake again. The words I use since then almost always contain mom, ma'am, or lady. Now get this out of your head. What my dad did was nothing physical. It was only the sternness and the firmness of his word that corrected my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. It only seemed like I got launched unconsciously into the next county. Now, stand in contrast to my response, that of Mary. (laughs) In verse 5, she says the exact opposite from what I just described. She tells the servants, do what he says. What were in Jesus' words that enabled Mary to direct the servants rather than argue with him? Nothing but hope. Recount all the miracles God had done in the lives of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus right up to this point. I'm not so sure, but the remainder of the verse also suffers a lost-in-translation moment. Woman, as a term of address to his mother, can only be honoring because it comes from the lips of our Lord and Savior who has commanded us to love, to honor our father and our mother. So here's the Baum translation of what makes sense to him. Mom, don't worry about this. Leave it up to me. Then you will understand what is going on. So whatever was meant by Jesus and understood by his mom resulted in Mary's counsel to the servants. Now it's the servants' time to say, what? Turning to Jesus, the servants, he gives them their instruction to fill each of the six stone water jars used for rites of purification to their brims with what? Water? They obeyed. How many of us are guilty of just standing there and arguing about a command from our Lord, looking for a way out or some easy way for resolution? There is no easy way of resolution here. 
This brings us to our third point. God is not constrained by our time. So Jesus gives one more command to the servants in verse 8, and he says to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. What? So they took it. Now, before we go on, think about this. As Michael read, these are six jar, or clay jars, each containing 20 to 30 gallons. I'm going to use 30 because that's a bigger number than 20. Let's use 30 because it's bigger. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. So at 3.785 liters per gallon and 750 milliliters per bottle, Jesus just made 909 bottles of wine from water. No grapes and in not enough time. This is a vintage the likes of which no vintner has ever made on this earth. So somebody in the movie audience, and we all know who you are, is already doing some math in their head. Top shelf red wine and high V's $200. $181,000? Well, then they go even further, and then they remember there was a bottle of Romani Conti, 1945, that sold, one bottle sold for $558,000 five years ago. 909 bottles of that stuff would run $507,222,000. This should cause us to know that Christ's miracles are priceless as we return to the movie screen. So now the camera goes back to a wide angle as a servant takes a cup of this wine to the master of the feast. The background music stops. Then their camera closes in on the master as he receives the cup. Surely by now, the rumor has spread to all the attendees, including the feast workers and the movie audience. Everyone would be in suspense as they see the cup coming to the master. What will be the opinion of the master of the feast? No wine slouch, he. Look at verses 9 through 11. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's at this moment that all of the attendees of the wedding feast know the heart joy from God who has just now glorified Jesus in Jesus' first miracle. But not all who are there know that they just saw Jesus glorified. This brings us to our fourth point. God's reason for his will is his glory and our joy. Those who are known by the Lord trust him. So let's land the plane here. 
We look at verse 11 and we see the two reasons for the distresses of Mary and the wedding party in John 2.11. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And two, his disciples believed in him. That Jesus manifests his glory, that his disciples believe in him. Notice this transition of the disciples from just days earlier when they wanted to follow him. We're going to follow the Beatles. I'm going to follow sports or some athletic other team. Blah, 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 blah. Sort of the way that a lot of us think we have entered into our relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. This deal about manifesting his glory happens day in and day out, moment by moment, minute by minute, in the heart of every believer. He wants us to become believers today more so than we were yesterday and less than he wants us to become tomorrow right down to the picosecond. In each of us who are saved, Jesus has manifested his glory, and he emboldens our belief and strengthens our faith. (laughs) And then you look in verse 2. After all of this, he also gives us his Sabbath rest. Why? so that we can savor what he has done and continues to do in this day. There's new joy that he has given to us that we would not have had had we not been put through the trial. And he wants us to know his peace as we lie down and sleep and enjoy his safety in which we dwell as we live in obedience to him, that we will glorify him. From now on in John's gospel, the manifestations of Jesus' glory increase in frequency and intensity until Jesus' magnum opus, his willing death on the cross as he bore our sins, his burial, his resurrection, his post-resurrection display of this glory, and his glorious ascension to the throne. We will hear him tell of his glory to Nicodemus, to Philip and Andrew and some Greeks, and to the eleven disciples who remained with him in the upper room. In chapter 20, John repeats his chapter 1 testimony of seeing Christ's glory when he explains why he wrote this gospel. This in itself glorifies Christ. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you in the blessed name of Jesus Christ our Lord to lift up your eyes to see all the glory he has and loves to share with you. What are your soul's needs that are satisfied only by Christ's glory? When was the last time you saw his glory? And how does John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 encourage you to see his glory? 
If you're here today as an unbeliever, we're grateful that you came. And, you're, and if your soul is touched by what God's word has told you today about Christ's glory, please come up to Tim or myself. Pick anybody in this congregation. We would be delighted to point you to the cross of Christ and his magnificent salvation. We close in prayer.